Welcome to the One Bite Vegan Food for Thought Summit, a series of 15 podcasts that present different aspects of a vegan lifestyle from some of the most prominent thought leaders in veganism. Perhaps you want to learn how to be a better advocate for animals. Maybe you want to feel confident about raising your family on a plant-based diet. Proudly sponsored by VegFund, the One Bite Vegan Food for Thought Summit's for you. Hello and welcome to the One Bite Vegan Summit. I'm your host, Emma Leticia, and in this episode, we're chatting with best-selling author, podcaster, international speaker, and champion for compassion, Colleen Patrick Goudreau. Colleen's made it her life's work to empower people to reflect their deepest values and their everyday choices, and she emphasizes the fact that being vegan is a means to an end rather than an end in itself. In her latest book, Colleen guides readers on how to stay vegan when it seems like the rest of the world wants you to go back to eating meat, eggs, and dairy. So if you've been facing a few struggles so far on your vegan journey, stay tuned because I know for sure Colleen's got a few pearls of wisdom to share with us. Hi, Colleen. Thank you so much for speaking with us and joining us today. Thanks, Emma. Good to be with you. Right, so we've only got half an hour, so I'm going to get stuck right in because I know that you've got a lot of great information to share with us. So let's talk about your new book because I think it covers topics that will really help a lot of people out. It's called The Joyful Vegan. What was it exactly that inspired you to write on that particular topic? So I've been talking about how to stay vegan, obviously how to become vegan and how to stay vegan for a long time. And in my podcast, in my other books, in several different types of mediums. And one of the things that I started doing was I started identifying all of these threads that I saw run through people's stories because I have the privilege and the honor of hearing from so many people who've become vegan and what they struggle with, what their you know challenges are, how they stay vegan, why they stop being vegan. And I just started noticing all of these threads that I think are keys to why people stay vegan and why people stop being vegan. And so I did a podcast series in my own podcast and food for thought several years ago. I did it as a 10 part series and I called it the 10 stages of what happens when you stop eating meat, dairy and eggs. And so it's the, it's the story that follows the, I, you know, I became vegan story because most of our stories kind of end with, and, and now I'm vegan, right? So it's the kind of the awakening that we all experience, you know, in the fairy tale motif, it's that moment of awakening. And then like in the fairy tale motif, it usually ends after that. And we don't really talk a lot about what happens next. And so this whole series and now this book, and I still talk about them as stages, even though they're not linear and they're not mandatory. It's not like you have to go through these. It's just that it's likely that you have gone through these experiences. They're just common experiences, but stages really seems to be the best way to characterize them. And so it, it is basically what happens once you become vegan. And, and so it, it gives a name to what so many people experience. But more than that, it talks about what happens if you don't manage the challenges in each of these stages, the, the worst risk of, of which is stopping being vegan, but it's also anger and depression and empathic distress. There's a lot of risks to not managing these stages. And, and obviously, the, the, like I said, the, the worst is, or the main reason I'm writing this is about how we stop being vegan if we don't manage them. So that's why, that's why I wrote this book. 
Mm, that's really interesting. And we're going to come back to managing some of those negative emotions a little further on in the podcast. But what do you personally feel or what outlines have you put in the book some of the key reasons for people reverting back to eating animal products? You know, I really think so many of them come down to our need as human beings, as social creatures, to have a sense of belonging. And, you know, there are certainly personalities that many of us have or experience or have seen in other vegans that are characterized by comfort in being a nonconformist, because that's what you are when you're vegan. I mean, you we are, we are nonconformists in a world that's conforming to the message that animals are here for us and that it's completely normal and necessary to eat animal products. So for someone to go against that, it does take a certain personality. However, that's not the only thing because there's there's too high a recidivism rate to account for just personality. There's the, the majority of people who become vegan stop being vegan. And so if it were just people who were comfortable, you know, not conforming to the status quo, we a lot better time, I think. So it's it's not enough to just have a personality that can buck the status quo. But related to that, I think really the thread that runs through so many of these stages is our need to belong and our need to feel part of a community and our need to feel not like a freak for just not wanting to hurt animals. So a lot of it comes back to that, but also that has to do with our own comfort level with who we are and what we're doing and why we're doing it and being able to articulate articulate that and being able to function and be aware of the imperfections of being human and the imperfections in a, in a, in just a world that is built on, you know, I mean, certainly built on exploitation of animals. And so a lot of it has to do with our own self actualization and comfort being different and finding our own joy and our own voice in being able to, to buck the status quo. But it's also about finding community, both within our non-vegan community and, and still having a link and still having relationships with people who aren't vegan in our families and our, you know, workplaces in our neighborhoods. But it's also about finding a community with like-minded people. So really social aspects, I think, are the biggest things we need to manage when, when becoming vegan, wanting to stay vegan. So would you say that the people that stick to a vegan lifestyle for good, they've kind of got the social aspect down or are there other factors that come into play? I think so. I think the social aspects, but also, you know, so one of the chapters is called Coming Out Vegan. And I talk about, you know, what it's like when we first tell our family and friends and, you know, kind of how they react and how we usually approach it and how there's better ways to approach it than not. But one of the things I do say in the coming out vegan chapter and kind of starting off with it is many vegans don't really come out to themselves in the sense that they don't really articulate why they're vegan and what it means for them to be vegan so that it makes it even more difficult to tell others. So I hear from a lot of people saying like, what do you tell people when they say, why are you vegan? I don't know what to say. I don't, I, I want to say the right thing. And I, and I, my answer is like, what, why are you vegan? <laughs> like, answer the question, know who you are, know yourself, know where you end and another person begins. And all of that confidence is going to translate to how you then interact with other people. So a lot of it, a lot of our social engagement has to start with our own 
our own, you know, skills when it comes to communicating and interacting with, with people, whether they're vegan or not. So, yeah, so a lot of it has to do with us really doing our own work on ourselves. And that's a a lifetime, you know, endeavor, but it does start with us being able to articulate and learn the skills necessary to cope, to communicate and to interact with people, whether they're vegan or not. Yeah, that's really good advice. It's almost like you should prepare your elevator pitch, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and for and 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 absolutely, but also so that it's authentic because I know we all want to say the right thing because we all have this desire to turn people vegan on the spot that we'll say the right thing that will move them to make a change in their own lives. And the pressure we put on ourselves is also detrimental, can be detrimental because, you know, I often say that I don't take credit for people who become vegan from my work, just like I don't take blame for people who don't become vegan from my work. We have to be really clear about what our intentions are. And so when someone asks, why are you vegan? It's not just about having the perfect elevator pitch to then make someone else vegan. We have to, you know, it's one of the chapters I talk about also is being clear about what our intentions are when we're talking about animals and when we're talking about being vegan. But really the thing that's going to connect people the most to our answer is the authentic answer, speaking from our heart, not trying to convince someone, not having an agenda when we're answering that question, but being very honest and very authentic. And that's going to resonate with people and ourselves more than any you know, desire to say the right thing or quote the right statistics or, you know, or, or try to convert someone. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, when, when you first go vegan, the, you kind of feel like the blindfold's been taken off and you have this urgent desire to like convert the whole world. So I think that's really great advice for all new vegans, and maybe even some of us that are still <laughs> trying to go and convert for everyone else as well. So we talked a little bit about some of the social pressures and we often hear a lot, you know, like if you're in a relationship and your partner isn't vegan and that can be a challenge, what's your best advice for those people that are struggling with external pressures to drop their vegan diet? Well, yeah. So I talk about that in a couple chapters, especially on the chapter where I talk about identity, because one of the things that happens is it appears, I mean, so as you said, we become so consumed by this, it becomes such a huge part of our identities, it becomes a huge part of our consciousness and our lives, and it's everything we think about. And so we're looking through that lens and we kind of expect everybody else to look through that lens as well. So, so some of it is, again, really understanding who we are and not seeing our vegan identity as competing with our other identities, because it's also going to play into disruption and conflict within those existing relationships, whether it's a romantic partner or our parents or, our, you know, colleagues or coworkers. And so a lot of it has to do with us being, again, very confident that we're not, that our being vegan is not a new identity that competes with our other identities, other relationships, as a mother, as a wife, as a husband, as a, you know, as a daughter, son, parent, whatever. It's, it's that it actually is a manifestation of who we really are and that it should enhance those relationships. So a lot of it has to do with the lens through which we're looking and not looking at the people who are not vegan vegan as this, you know, kind of monolithic 
you know, person, right? Because we don't want to be generalized. We don't want people to generalize who we are as vegans. And we need to be careful that we're not generalizing someone else who's not vegan because we can easily, easily slip into the trap that says, well, they're not vegan. And so therefore they don't care. They're not vegan and they're not compassionate. They're not vegan. And so they're just, you know, whatever, you know, they don't care about their health. They don't care about the animals, whatever, whatever narrative we tell ourselves, we need to step back and realize that they're on their own journey. We all inspire each other. That's why we're in relationship with one another. And being honest, being open, being unattached, but also just being, we need to allow that unfolding to take place. Often when we go to our friends and family right away and we get resistance from them, some of it is because we go to them with, with so much passion and so much enthusiasm, which don't quelch. I'm not saying that we should, you know, we should quell that, but we don't realize that we've been thinking about it for weeks or months by the time we you know, do talk to our family. And then they respond like, where did this come from? This is out of the blue. And they respond with defensiveness or just ignorance or the, uh, an awareness. And so we have to remember that like, they haven't been thinking about this the way we have. So having some compassion for them, having some patience, because no matter how defensive or unkind someone is, it's still not ours to control. The only thing we can control is how we interact with the people we do and how we respond to their defensiveness or their unkindness. It still comes back to us, even though we live in a world where there's resistance to veganism, it's still about how we respond to it rather than expecting them to do anything different. Mm, No, that's really good advice. It's it, it's so important for us to remember, you know, like I remember my own vegan journey. I I was researching, I felt like I was going down a rabbit hole and there was so much that I was learning every day. And when you just meet, like say your, your mother or your sister, you know, the starting point that you have to depart from and not just like a verbal diarrhea, like, well, here's everything I know. That can be very overwhelming for people. Exactly. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about some of the emotions that we can feel as vegans and it can be very emotionally draining to be vegan in a non-vegan world sometimes. How can we deal with what can be perceived as negative emotions such as guilt, judgment, sadness in order to be a joyful vegan? Yeah. So there's a chapter on anger. There's a chapter, uh, the first chapter, which you just touched on the voracious consumption of information. That's, that's stage one, uh, which is, you know, once you have the blindfold off, you want to just validate everything. You can't believe what's happening. You want to read every book and watch every documentary. That is part of the first stage. And one of the risks of that is actually what's called compassion fatigue, though I don't like that term. I prefer empathic distress because it really is an overstimulation of our empathy rather than having an overabundance of compassion. I think compassion is not a problem. It's usually the solution. So, but the point is we can burn out. We can develop empathic distress if we bear witness so much so that it becomes so overwhelming. I mean, that is a risk. And so it's not that we shouldn't bear witness. It's not that we shouldn't look. It's that we need to be mindful of not staring. It's not that we can't feel anger. It's not that we can't feel sadness. It's that we have to manage that anger and we have to not dwell in the sadness. So in every situation that we're dealing with, 
it's honoring what it is we're experiencing, but not overdoing it, not, uh, you know, literally just feeling like, because there's a lot of people who feel like if we're not looking all the time, that means we don't care, that we have to, we have to stare, we have to bear witness all the time, we have to talk about it all the time, that if we don't, we're letting the animals down. And one of the things I talk about is that, you know, the animals don't need us to be distressed as they are. They need us to transcend our distress so that we can end there. So we need to take care of ourselves, like self-care and self self-compassion and creating a plan for that, whether it's an overall life plan or whether it's a day-to-day plan for taking care of ourselves and managing the anger and managing the sadness and managing the overconsumption of information, etc. If we don't do that, and again, it's up to us, then the risk is, you know, you know, depression, rage, self-righteousness, indignation, and those are all not good in themselves. And then the other risk is that all those things can lead to just giving up entirely and just not becoming vegan or not staying vegan. And I know there are vegans who say, well, when that happens, because <laughs> we can be a little judgy, they immediately say, well, then they never cared in the first place or they never were really vegan in the first place and whatever judgments we place. It's not true. It's just not, it's just not who we are as humans. We, as humans want to feel connected. We want to feel good. We want to feel, you know, part of a community, we don't want to feel like that all the time. And so that, that, that is something we have to manage. And there's lots of ways to, to do that. I mean, there's lots of avenues people can take, whether if, you know, they look yoga or meditation or, you know, if they go to therapy, I mean, there's so many ways to manage it. And a lot of it is just like, again, being part of a community and being able to talk about what it is we're feeling but also regulating the bearing witness. We have to regulate all of these things or they just become you know, the extreme. Yeah, that's, that's really fantastic advice. Something that I'd like to talk, to talk about that you talk about quite often, which I think is wonderful, is about releasing this idea of being the perfect vegan. Can you talk a little bit about how this kind of all or nothing thinking can sabotage our good intentions? It really does. It, it's really the biggest mistake, as you said earlier, that people make is that they think vegan is, is an end in itself, that it's a badge to wear, that it's the goal to reach. And the thing that I've been emphasizing for 20 years is that veganism is a means to an end. And that end is unconditional compassion and optimal wellness, depending on what your motives are, or many motives are. And so if we see it as an end in itself, we get hung up on the perfection and purity. And we really go down a road that is very dangerous and leads to fundamentalism. And I have a whole chapter on evangelizing and proselytizing and fundamentalism and finding the balance between sharing the good news about what it means to live compassionately without becoming fundamentalist. And that is a risk. So... For me, being vegan is a means to that end. It's, it's the best thing we have to make the best effort we can to not contribute to violence against animals or to eat as you know, optimally, healthfully as possible. That's the end. And veganism is just a really, really effective way to do that. So, yeah, I mean, so the, so the problem with it is that it doesn't 
you know, it doesn't feel good to sustain self-righteousness. People don't really want to hang around with people who just are, you know, holier than thou. These are the stereotypes of vegans and they're stereotypes for a reason. I think we've all known the, you know, the self-righteous vegans. So it doesn't only cause strife within our ourselves. It doesn't only cause strife within our vegan and non-vegan relationships. It causes vegan strife within the vegan communities, as we know. When we argue about 1%, of the things we don't agree on, as opposed to celebrating the 99.9% things we do agree on. So when it so when it gets down to that low level, you know, kind of like you're not vegan if you you know eat peanut butter that was made on machinery that also you know had some kind of egg product on it. Like that's not what being vegan is about. And when you get to that point, I think you just you've lost the plot. <laughs> That's a nice way to put it. <laughs> Can you give us any examples from your own experience as a vegan when you've experienced perhaps difficult conversations with others about being vegan and how you've managed it? Yeah, you know, I I really use humor a lot in the interactions I have with people. I also I also come to every relationship and interaction I have with people, vegan or non-vegan, I come to those, those interactions presuming that they're already compassionate people. And so I don't let people get away with making excuses or, or you know, kind of perpetuating misconceptions about animals, but I'm also not looking to to win an argument. I'm looking to have a dialogue. And so, you know, my intention is to speak up for the animals, to reflect my truth, to just be honest, to be authentic. And that's my intention. And if there's someone who's, you know, who wants to just fight me or argue, I'm honestly just not really interested because they want to win an argument. You know, of course we all like to win arguments. I'm not saying that I don't, I'm not tempted sometimes, but I really just try and keep it at where can we find common ground? You know, what do we agree on? And when there is conflict in that interaction, I usually just use humor and kind of end, end it there if they're not really interested. But I'm always trying to find connections rather than, you know, fostering. I, again, I, I'm not looking to win an argument. And so I just think that people genuinely are good people. They, they care. They're compassionate. They don't know, just like I didn't know when I was saying things like, well, I get organic eggs and free range eggs and organic milk. And, you know, I mean, I did that too. And I have to remember what it was like. And if I encountered someone who was just a jerk to me because I said something that maybe reflected my ignorance, then I would, I don't know, like, I think it would have delayed my being vegan a long, a much longer time. So I don't know. So, I mean, yeah, I've had conversations with people who, who push back and I usually just, you know, if, if they're not interested, there's a lot of other people who are, and I'd rather focus on them. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I think you, you come across a lot of uh, difficult conversations being vegan sometimes with family members and sometimes with just random people that you meet at parties. So it is a, a bit of a minefield, but I think that's some great advice. I think for sure, Emma, I think families are the hardest and in that, and that, that stuff, like, cause stuff from the past can come up and expectations and disappointment and, you know, family history and, 
you know, family, you know, cultural issues. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things that sure. get tradition. I mean, that's stuff that has to be navigated. You know, I think in the same way, again, in being authentic and honest and being unattached and really understanding where they're coming from and being patient and kind, because to be honest, any resistance that I've ever seen family members have with, with people that I've heard from in my experience, they do come around eventually, especially if we kind of create the space for that to happen. It's not to say that there's not going to be conflict or arguments, but, but honestly, I really just see families come around after some time. So, you know, creating the space for that, I think is, is also really important. But yeah, like I said, again, just like emphasizing that, you know, I, I often joke that like with our parents who get defensive, like blame them for raising a compassionate, conscious person, because <laughs> that's usually what happens is that we have, you know, a, a light bulb moment and realize that, oh my gosh, we've always been compassionate. My parents raised me to be compassionate, but I just wasn't making the connection between the animals, you know, that we have in our home and the animals I was eating. And so, sorry, mom, it's your fault. You're the one who made me to think critically or and to be compassionate. And this is basically reflecting what you taught me. I mean, so we can, you know, kind of even stave off those more difficult conversations by kind of, you know, giving them some credit for, for raising us to be compassionate people. I love that. I'm using that one at Christmas this year. <laughs> so we've only got a few minutes left, but I just want to, we've talked about a lot of stuff here and it's all fantastic. But if you could just summarize, what does it take to become a joyful vegan? I think it takes self awareness. I think it takes being aware because being vegan means being awake and it means being aware, but it is about managing all of the things that led us to being vegan in the first place so that we don't go to the other side and the extreme. So, you know, our compassion is what made us vegan, but not becoming so distressed by our empathy that it becomes a detriment. Being angry at what happens to animals may have compelled us to make a change and that it's a wonderful step, but not dwelling in that anger. Awareness, you know, compelled us to understand what's happening, but that doesn't mean we have to stare all the time. So it's really managing all of the things and honoring all of the things that compelled us to become vegan in the first place and then using them as tools rather than seeing them as the, as the end in themselves. So it's, it's looking without staring. It's feeling without, you know, like I said, having empathic distress. I mean, it's really managing all of that. And also I really believe that we have to look at the past to understand the present and to plan for the future because there are a lot of reasons, Emma, to be hopeful about where we're going, especially if we look at where we've been. And there are a lot of reasons and a lot of stories we can dwell on that's going to make us feel really bad or there are a lot of stories and a lot of reasons we can look at to make us feel hopeful for the future. And that's what I would really say to people more than anything is that you can cultivate hope just like you can cultivate anger. And it's really up to you which one you choose. And I think that is the difference between a joyful vegan and an angry vegan is someone who cultivates hope and cultivates compassion 
every day of their lives. Wow, that's fantastic. And what a fantastic resource Joyful Vegan is. I wish I, it had been around when I first went vegan, but I'm definitely getting myself a copy anyway. Thank you. <laughs> well, I hope all our listeners are feeling renewed and inspired now to move on joyfully in their vegan journey. And on that note, it brings us to the end of this episode. So, Colleen, thank you so much for your time and sharing the exciting news about your new book. Oh, thanks so much, Emma. Thank you, everybody. If you'd like to learn more about Colleen's work and where to order Joyful Vegan, please click on her bio link in today's email. You'll find details on her website, plus links to Colleen's social media accounts too. Finally, thank you so much for listening and being part of the One Bite Vegan Summit. Remember, one bite is all it takes to make a change. Thank you for listening and being part of the One Bite Vegan Summit. Be sure to keep up to date with the latest One Bite Vegan online events and free resources, including the One Bite Vegan blog and digital magazine by connecting with us via our website, onebitevegan.com. Remember, one bite is all it takes to make a change.